2: Welcome to the Watford Buzz podcast with today's episode in association with the Brentford FC tactical team at Bees Tactical on Twitter. Later in the show, we will also be building up to the Huddersfield game by talking to Brady Frost, a fan and podcaster from the Andy Takes That Chance Huddersfield FC based podcast. But first, like I mentioned in the opening today, is a special episode where we are going to try to do some tactical and statistical digging into the game that's just gone Watford versus Brentford. And to help me do that is show regular Jordan Weimer and from the Brentford tactical team David Anderson hello to you both
3: uh hello yeah how you doing Matt hi Jordan um yeah thanks for having me this is quite exciting isn't it a little debrief um yeah thanks for having me on board yeah good to be here looking forward to it
2: good stuff okay well gents it's uh, it's a game that finished 1-1 but it actually wasn't really uh an uninteresting game like uh, some 1-1s do turn out to be uh firstly Jordan how did Watford change from the previous fixture with Birmingham for this one what what, what did we see coming into this
4: well, we saw us revert back to that uh, four-man four back four. Uh, we just switched to the four-three-three, three. And we tried to move things around a little bit in the field in a different way. But we still had that, that same three central midfield group. Um, we were very wing-based again. Uh, we just didn't really quite click, especially in that first half. We did struggle to progress the ball. Mm-hmm. And uh,
3: Brentford definitely had the better of it.
2: And David, how did Brentford change for this one? Or, or did they change at all?
3: Uh no no I think it was pretty much as expected. Um the only curveball could have been force coming into the starting lineup. But yeah it was Brentford's sort of standard 4-3-3 three, three, uh the single pivot two eights in front of midfield um two wide forwards supporting Tony. So yeah back four it was um it was pretty much expected. Yeah.
2: So the uh the first half was uh pretty much Brentford that had the majority of the possession and, and at the end of the first half Thomas Frank was uh, pretty happy with that.
3: Yeah, it was an exceptional start actually. I I think um Uh, Jordan, in his preview, uh, noted that you might get a bit of a shock and sort of a level of watching or seeing a team come up against Brentford. Um, And yeah, yeah, we started really well. In fact, it was Thomas Frank said it post game. He said it was one of the best halves we've had so far uh, this season. And yeah, we were totally dominant in every area. I think Watford had a couple of balls into the box two at most but really the possession the midfield rotations um sort of all of the passes uh, mo- the majority of the chances were all um it was all Brentford really it was pretty much one-way traffic and it was it just showed a real golfing in class I think Deeney struggled for sort of pressing from the front it was he couldn't really stop anyone on possession there the midfielders were kind of chasing shadows um the Brentford's three totally dominating the three of Watford and uh we got some good crosses in as well and um a couple of inches here and there and it might have been a couple of goals instead of uh, nil nil going in at half time.
4: Yeah, I think I think Brentford ultimately but kind of the the style in which they play in possession especially through that midfield and the David saying the change of the positions. That's something ideally we'd like to see more from ourselves. Um we we are kind of the opposite of of Brentford in possession in that game. I think it's really like polar opposite in terms of how we approached it and how we actually executed it. Um in terms of in terms of Deeney being isolated in the zone, our, our offensive build up's very very basic at the moment and and you saw you saw that stark contrast. So yeah, I think there's a lot of possession from uh, from Brentford in, in deeper areas and they looked very comfortable to come, come make them combinations at the back and then slowly work their way into midfield and once they got there they were they were very capable. So yeah, I think our midfield was set up to be that sort of defensive off off the ball kind of chasing shadow kind of game. Um, yeah. Brentford really kind of gave us a bit of a lesson in terms of how to, how to run the ball through your through your defense and midfield for sure.
2: In terms of shots on target, who um, had the most and, and and how was that reflected in the XG?
3: Um, I mean, I think the whole game was pretty even. We can see in XG it was quite tight. Um, non-penalty XG uh, really tight as well with the one penalty each. Um, Without going too much into just the numbers, I think what was quite interesting is how even the game ended up. And we'll probably go on to talk about this a bit later, but the red card influenced that. But yet with the red card, the game is still really even. So it probably shows Brentford's dominance there as well. Um, Without the penalty, I think Watford did look quite limited. I couldn't see really how that ball was going to get close enough to the box. There was a couple of shots from outside the box and uh, working into the final third sort of hit towards Deeney and then quite hopeful and nothing... There were no clear patterns of how Watford were going to get away shots, whereas Brentford, when the game was nil-nil, you could see that there were clear ways of how the ball was getting into the final third and how they were going to create some chances at goal. So just without looking at the numbers, I think seeing how, um, we're not focusing too much on them, just seeing how even the game ended up was quite interesting from a point of view of it took it took Brentford to go a man down for it end up so close.
2: Jordan, what was Watford's uh, strategy to try and get the opening goal in the first half and why didn't it seem to work for them?
4: I think it's just been a continuing point really for us in terms of trying to get that goal it's there's no real cohesive plan that you can see it's a lot of uh, a lot of being conservative and defensive and then when you get the opportunity to go forward it looks a bit less a little more improvised and not quite so cohesive as when you see teams like Brentford play um so yeah it's the, the plan is hard to pin down it's been mostly get the ball wide and try and get balls into the box I think last night we struggled to actually get wide and get advanced well, and we ended up getting a lot of crosses in maybe a little bit too early or when we haven't actually been able to occupy the box. And I think down the right-hand side, especially we struggled with uh, with Ismail Asahi putting a lot of crosses, but often very early and he didn't really, didn't really attack his man, which we kind of want to see. Um, but I, think, I still think we are struggling to, to shift that mentality of being that defensive counter-attacking team and being that more kind of uh, aggressive on the ball and being a little bit more patient and trying to build up in that sense. I mean, last night, despite having less of the ball I think we didn't manage just a single counter-attack actually so it kind of shows you that even though we are sitting off the ball we haven't quite got that balance of defence and attack right yet at Mm. all.
2: The second half produced um, a very different picture actually at least the first part Mm -hmm. of it both teams came out and Watford seemed to have found themselves but Brentford they didn't really have the same emphasis in the first half David.
3: Yeah it was really noticeable actually I I was actually watching it with a Watford supporting friend and we were sort of discussing it and being, he was quite brutal about it the first half, and then we probably thought it fitted in with Ivić's game plan. Sort of, he knows that Brentford are better on the ball. We, he knows that Brentford are quite shot happy. He can um, we'll, we'll probably beat we'll probably beat Brentford. Uh, sorry, beat Watford in the shot totals and um, and in possession. So let them sort of burn themselves out a little bit. Let them sort of go forth and see what they've got and, and soak a little bit of it up. And the second half, I think straight from um, the kickoff, basically it was, it, it looked, there was a subtle change. I think Garner moved a little, his positioning was a little bit more interesting in the second half. I don't, I don't think he was, I, I think he struggled to get on the ball at all really in the first, but um, uh, sort of moved a little bit. F- I think he was a little bit more positioned on the right at times and came in a little bit more, but got a bit more of an impact um, on the game. But it was definitely, there was definitely more impetus and sort of more momentum in Watford in that second half, just willingness to attack. And possibly that, that could have been the game plan. But Brentford struggled to react to that. And that, those first 10 minutes saw a real lift in Watford. And it obviously led to the chance uh, that won the penalty as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely did. Yeah, Watford, they, they played a lot better in that first Part of the second half, Jordan. It's, what do you think was uh, was, was different? What, what do you think Ivić said, and, and how did that reflect in the numbers?
4: Yeah, I think that was probably the biggest uh, tactical change Ivić made during the game. Is that switch at time. I think we were a bit more aggressive at, off the ball. We started to press her up the pitch, and and we saw a lot of uh, a lot of benefit from that. We actually, you know, as David was saying, we forced some chances from it, and it looked a lot better for us. It was a little bit more risky, perhaps, but the thing is, at the stage where Brentford were having such dominance of possession in their own in their own half and it was it was giving them lots of opportunities to kind of slowly progress that ball forwards and it was hurting us so I think that was a positive change from us Um, it was good to see and that's probably the uh, the 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 part of the game that actually made us a competitive outfit in it because before that we looked like we were being completely dominated because we were and uh, yeah I think that's Ivid's plan was just to try and get back in the game that way. Uh, I think actually, as David was saying, the positioning of Ghana here, yeah, he became more advanced, and he was able to get forward and try and try and disrupt that defensive build-up that we'd been seeing in the first half. Um, actually, just looking for the numbers, it can't surprise me how similar some of the actual some of the actual numbers were in terms of passing. But I think a big difference between uh, between Brentford and Watford, uh, despite having similar numbers of passes forward and through the defence, the tempo as played that was much better with Brentford, and they've seen the movement was much better, so the combinations were just much more effective, and uh, we didn't get that going, unfortunately.
2: And ultimately, the attacking play for Watford produced the opportunity for the penalty. Was it a penalty, in your opinion? David first.
3: Uh, was it a penalty? Uh, yeah, I think it definitely was a penalty. It, it wasn't really in doubt. Um, the incident that sort of came afterwards, we, we might, we'll discuss that in a second, but yeah the, there was talk of sort of was he offside or not and I, I think he was onside I'm, I'm not sure what VAR would say but to me he looked onside um good run and Pinnock's Pinnock's sort of been pulled into a bit of a trap I think I think he should have he's quite quick Pinnock and I, I think he had legs but to, to sort of get round um Saar but I, I think he was wanted to make contact with him probably slightly too early and Saar slowed down just enough just so it, so it was coming and it's a it's a messy collision and. Pinnock can sort of plead innocence that he hasn't made a challenge or wanted to get out of the way or just sort of ran into him, but Saar's been quite clever and Pinnock has been conned slightly and uh, it looks really messy and you can't really give anything other than a penalty in that situation. So yeah, for me, it was a definite penalty. Whether whether he should have gone, whether... the penalty is enough whether those things are, are still up in the air that's that's all a bit of a mess mm. but yeah it was it was a clear foul well won by Saar and um, uh, and just a little bit not naivety but just he, he's just been played a little bit there Pinnock I think he was just too eager to make contact and he yeah you got to think does he want to does he want to let the shot come away or or is he going to risk a penalty where Rare has a chance to save the penalty or does he prevent that shot and I think he probably chose the wrong one in the end
2: Jordan, uh, Stonewall, penalty for you or, or disagree?
3: No, I think I'm
4: pretty much agreed there. I think Sarr just clever bit of running and he makes it very difficult for Pinnock and he forces him to make a decision. Anytime you can get a defender to do that, then you've got an opportunity to exploit it. And I, I think it was kind of unfortunate There's just, you know, two sets of long legs kind of running side by side, it's, there's a good chance that things are going to tangle up. And it was very difficult, but the advantage is always going to go to the attacker in that situation. But a question I did want to ask you, actually, David, did you feel... Did you act, when you watch uh, when you watch us play? Do you actually feel like Ismail Assar is a, is a is a constant threat, or did you feel like he was quite anonymous in the game?
3: Uh, I, no, I'd say he's a threat. I think he was probably your biggest threat actually. Um, uh, sort of when he has the ball, you can't lunge in. So Rico Henry is probably one of the best left backs in the league, but there wasn't he didn't get much change out of him. I think in the, first, in the first half there were a couple of crosses that were blocked, and he did actually get a ball across Rico and get past him, but no, no, not easy at all. I think. This is, yeah, when you sort of watch your own players and you watch them so much, you just, sometimes they're, they're, their wow factor or their um, their ability fades, but no, he was he was a definite threat and yeah, he, he won the penalty for you. Um, he gave Rico a really good game down that side. Um, he floats around a little bit more than I was expecting as well, actually. I didn't, I, I think his movement in the final thread, probably, especially in the second half, to get closer to Dini and obviously when we we're down to 10 men, was dangerous. So no, no, definitely definitely a threat and um yeah, a, a constant player that needed to be watched, and well, yeah, I think he yeah. did, did get the better of us in the end. Well, it's interesting
4: you bring up his movement there because that's something that's been a bit of an issue for us. Is he's, he's occupied the right hand side so much, almost to uh, to his detriment. He he's, he hugs that line and he, he's not really had that. That freedom, or whether it's by choice or by coaching, he's not really actually moved into them central areas. And obviously, he won the penalty by making a little bit more of a narrow run. Mm-hmm. Um, something, that, something that we've been a bit disappointed with is how, or me personally, I think quite a few Watford fans is last season he he was very aggressive on the ball and he he would run at defenders. Where this year he's been very quick to put the cross in. Um, even when we haven't got numbers in the box. And I think it does kind of downplay his ability a little bit. Um, he's, not quite, he's not quite been able to adapt to that change in mentality, I think. And that's something we've definitely seen... Um, with Watford as a whole really is you go down from the from the Premier League and you've suddenly got to shift that mentality completely to be a, a more dominant team and we haven't quite made that transition from a counter-attacking side to that kind of more possession-based uh, build-up style that we've just not really seen work out so yeah Sars definitely been one of the ones that's been affected by that I just wondered what it came across like for for yourself so yeah it's good to hear you think it's a threat but it just needs to actually come together from now I think
2: Yeah, he certainly was a threat and he was a threat enough to get himself the penalty. But just after the penalty was when things started to go a bit askew. Uh, Pinnock was the man who brought him down. I think that's what everyone saw. But the red card went a different way, David.
3: (laughs) It did, yeah. It It wasn't a great night for the officials. It's not... I don't want this to sound like I'm sort of berating officials that we didn't win or they had a major influence on the game or the outcome. But the officiating was poor in terms of... Uh, just in terms of some calls and, and were they watching or were they paying attention or was it was it such a fast game that they could lose track? I, I don't think it was. I thought it was quite a steady game, but yeah, some awful decisions. It was Mads Beck, Sorensen, um, our centre-back. Uh, uh, doesn't look too similar to Pinnock to me. Um, I, I don't know if I'm missing something there, but yeah, he was the one that got the red and then pleading that it wasn't me and in the end Pinnock was sent off. So it just it wasn't a good look for sort of officiating having control of the game. Uh, I, th- I think it looked quite bad in that sense. Um, they got the right decision in the end. Obviously, they they conferred and uh, it was it was rescinded and given to the right person. But mm. along with a, no- a number of other incidents, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure they were that on top of it. And I, I think there were a couple of other actually incidents that probably looked more like penalties or that, that went astray. And I don't know. It, I think this is something that we're probably going to talk about, or you might talk about on your channel a little bit further. How how fans have influenced um, some decision making and whether whether fans influence a home team I, I don't think it's so much the team that gets impacted with them it's actually probably more decisions and um, this natural levelling up between making the game fair between fan team and rival team and and this this sort of confusion that they sort of find themselves coming into and that, that has more of an impact as well sort of no, I think it's pretty spot on. I mean, we've we've just come back down to the Premier League, and we've
4: we had the season of VAR, so we have an uh, experience with that as well. And we we were pretty pretty unfortunate, as it happens, in quite a few occasions last season. Uh, we definitely on the balance of things, we were quite harshly done by by VAR, and it was very disappointing. But I think there was maybe an air of it will be refreshing to kind of go back to this traditional refereeing. And I think honestly, these opening opening few months has, has kind of been a bit of an awakening towards that as well. So I think the officiating's been pretty. Pretty poor um and not just, I'm not saying this from just a Watford perspective, I'm talking about for both teams, I thought, as you say, mm. the, the refereeing last night, it hurt both of us. Um, and, you know, I agree with you, it kind of undermines the decision of the referee a little bit um, when he's, you know, mistaking the actual players who are involved. So, yeah, it's, it's very poor and it changes the game massively. I mean, officiating is a big part, obviously. And if you have those sort of incidents happening regularly enough, then, you know, it just takes out some of the... Uh, some of the performance of the team it gets undermined by a decision that changes the the outcome of the game so yeah it, it's something that has to be has to be improved upon and it's it's an unfortunate sideshow to what sh- you know should be a close competitive game
2: i just wonder do you feel as though the level of refereeing in the premier league is is better than than the championship and um, and below
4: I, I do think so I, I do think it is it is better but there's there's the same problems exist Um, it's a a difficult thing to do. I mean, clearly, there's not an easy solution to it because it happens in officiating all over the world across all different sports. So there's always going to be elements of human error and it's hard to address sometimes where they come from um but i think i think there are some positives that we've seen from var it's just the application of that hasn't been great either so it's very difficult to to come to a to a definitive answer at this point but i think var is is the kind of right direction it just needs to be uh it needs to be used in a way that can actually be a little bit more consistent and a little clearer because because right now there's either one has pros and cons and i think no matter what one you're actually you're actually playing within. You definitely feel like you're being harshly done by at times. And I think both teams have an argument for that last night. It just creates a, a distraction you don't really want to have to be focusing on.
3: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think that the VAR itself is an amazing tool. And video assistant referees, it's, it's the potential to sort of revolutionize and actually be good. It's just, it needs to be refined. It needs to be, it needs to be seamless in terms of, uh, I think we need to have a referee. So obviously we have the on-field referee, but... The the video analysis referee needs to have sort of a similar level of importance. Watch this is I've always thought this. They need to be watching the state watching the game at the same sort of level and kind of and kind of talking the referee through the game. It can't just be one person there and then sort of uh, letting big decisions go to VAR and then someone else who's not quite qualified to make them and sort t- trying to follow a book too much it needs to be a more collaborative effort between using the tools that we have and then sort of moving more importance away from the referee on the pitch i think i think something like that or basically the fourth official i've said this before on other channels but the fourth official is pretty much worthless in sport in football anyway sorry they just sort of show numbers to the to the crowd for substitutions and then calm down the the head coaches really they should be assisting the game they should be watching it from another angle and supporting like heavily supporting not sort of uh, not just sort of there but they should actually be a big part of the game and we, we have the money in football to do it it's just whether whether there's enough um, impetus to get it right.
2: Do you, you feel as though um, taking a leaf out of out of rugby's book and also the, the NFL how uh, on-field referees explain their decisions in real time to the crowd and and, and the, in the TV audience as well do you think that would be Something well, it has that be been beneficial. tried,
3: hasn't it? It has been tried and trialled, especially in Australia. I think they've done a few sort of similar things where the refs are mic'd up and spoken and you hear what they're saying and there's a little bit more collaborative. But um, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure if that is the answer. I, I don't think that's it. I think it's more... I, I, think at the, I, I feel like at the same time, the running of the game can't just be left to a referee on the pitch just to monitor all angles. There needs to be someone else coming in and just it needs to be... Constant communication and sort of help in case he has missed something, and and I think we're just a long way from that. And until we get to something like that, we, we're probably going to always fall into this this trap of um, of blame and sort of errors. But yeah, I don't know how you feel about that, Jordan. I think I think you're right in
4: terms of having the extra assistant referee and having someone that's monitoring the game. I mean, it says a lot when, if you're looking through Twitter during a game, you you get accurate accurate descriptions of what's going on and identifying that if it's a foul or not from the fans before you've actually got a definitive decision made from the, from the <laughs> referee at times especially when it comes to VAR so it just shows you how there's a breakdown in communication at VAR level and it's obviously non-existent without that so having someone that can watch the game and and be actively seeing it from a different perspective i mean being down on the pitch as a referee you, it's impossible to see everything it's it's very difficult it's you know you, if you've played at any level you know how it's it's harder to see Decisions from from certain angles and distances, and some refs do a better job than others. But ultimately, it's you know it's not a perfect system. And having someone else that can give a better better view of it and be in a position to have a you know a more 360 kind of over the field looking down view and and have a better idea of how things are how things are playing out is just I mean it's nothing but positive for me. And they need to have that authority to be able to you know say to the referee if they're defi- if it's definitive and it's clear then it should be able to be done. I'm not sure if there's a if there's a part of you know maybe it's undermining the referee he feels i think that's kind of been a little bit of a problem with var too there's a there's a weird sort of ego in play mm. um and you know people stick to their guns a bit with the decisions and it can create a, a bit of a messy situation but i think maybe with the nfl it's a little bit different because they have those they have those natural pauses in, in game to yeah. to view these things and they've got a different different rhythm it's not as fluid as uh as something like like football so you can draw from them sports for sure, but every every um, every sport has their has their issues. Uh, something I do like with the NFL, which I think is an interesting thing to to look at, is they often have they have refereeing teams. So, looking at that from a soccer football perspective, you'd have a line two linesmen and the referee that work together as a team consistently. I think that does help. I think having that communication helps um you might see a few less um few less errors just purely if we have an extra comfort with each other and that that kind of idea of role a little bit more i think if you're switching around all these all these uh officials each week it might create a little bit of uh you know it's, it's harder to communicate they're not as comfortable with each other and it, it, you lose a little bit of that so there are definitely things to draw from from all sports but as of yet no no sport in in particular has got it nailed on perfect there's lots of things that can be improved but i think using technology and appropriately is, is definitely the forward because we've seen some instances of how it can be used well.
2: Right let's uh, head away from refereeing decisions now just because I feel like we've bashed them too much already and we've got to get back to the game but after the the penalty that was well dispatched by Troy Deeney and and a little word on Troy Deeney there Jordan he uh, he certainly knows how to score a penalty doesn't he?
4: He does and we you know the question before the game is he gonna go down the middle again and he, he did and it was just just too powerful in the end but I mean you do feel like he's on borrowed time but if he does miss one, then ultimately he still had a pretty good ratio, and it's just kind of worth running into the ground until the, until someone stops him because it's a very difficult thing to stop. And I think you know we all know where it's going, and evidently Ray did too. So, yeah, Troy just doing what he does when it comes to taking spot kicks, and it was enough to kind of give us that lead. And yeah, it, it was it was impressive again just to see that confidence to go for it.
2: And the moments later, when you'd imagine Watford would be sort of in the ascendancy, um, another penalty is given. Another, in my opinion, correctly given penalty. What do you think of that one, David? Uh, yes. Yeah, I think it
3: was. Um, yeah, I, I think it was a penalty. I don't think um, there was much doubt about that one. Uh, I think there was a couple of others that could have been penalty as well. The Chalaba one where it's, it's a little bit, um, a bit dubious at the moment. It's sort of, You've got the cane spear that he keeps doing in the Premier League where um, I, I think Tony held his position and Chalibur kind of came along the top of him and there wasn't much intention of playing the ball, but I've seen a lot, I've seen a lot flakier penalties given than that. Um, But yeah, it was, it was, Tony's one was definitely a penalty. Yeah. I I think that's, um, I think that's the right decision. Yeah.
2: And a very different penalty taking style that we saw from Tony (laughs) compared to that, to that of Troy Deeney.
3: Yeah. It's the, it's the, it's the complete opposite to Deeney, isn't it? Um, Deeney steps up and he hits that thing harder than you could ever hit anything, but tony is very different it's really subtle he just sort of watches the keeper waits for any movement and he does it's it's a hard skill it doesn't take he doesn't even look at the ball he just knows where it is plants his foot and places it and uh yeah it's 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 weird like you're talking about dini in terms of everyone knows where he's going to go and he when he misses one one's coming and uh, i think about the flack that tony's going to receive when he many miss, misses one of his penalties but it's a really good technique. The goal, the goal doesn't move. The ball doesn't move, you hope. Um, just opens up his body and places it the opposite way to where the keeper goes. I, th- I think the challenge will be when a keeper sort of faces him up and actually t- just tries to wait even longer and longer and pushes it back onto him. But yeah, wonderful penalty taker and uh, long may it continue.
2: Is that his regular style? Or is, it's not something we saw so special for Watford? That, that's how no. he
3: <laughs> No, no, it wasn't a special Hornets penalty. It was a... Um, <laughs> this is his style yeah he's he's just um he's just super confident but it's not it's not arrogance it's it's like he just knows his ability he's um he's really he just strikes a clean ball off the instep and yeah it's 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 a skill he's perfected um lyle taylor does something similar for um nottingham forest and it's it's weird these guys just sort of get branded as like arrogant center forwards um just but it's it's a skill and if they can if they can repeat if they can repeat it basically time and time again then you can call them whatever you want they they're really talented at that and uh, yeah it wasn't it wasn't special for you No, he's perfected it
4: <laughs> i start. think the variation in penalty styles is very indicative of the two teams in style as well wasn't it <laughs> the the cultured finish from, t- from Tony and the driven down the middle from from Dini i think was pretty yeah summed up the game pretty well actually um quick question on tony actually his movement, I thought, was really, really good again. I thought he, he worked across that back line quite well, which is something that opposition forwards haven't done too much against us um, so far. They were dropping; He was dropping into that space and kind of making it very difficult for Caboselli, uh, especially, I thought, at times. Um, has he been a big upgrade for you in the central forward position this season? Has it been like a nice change in terms of
3: just the actual role of your striker and the actual mould that he's in? Yeah, it's interesting you say upgrade. I, I don't think that's the right word. It's um Watkins played there last season and Watkins just a very different forward. So Watkins is a converted winger, so he's naturally more comfortable at um, picking the ball up in the wide areas or or sort of rotating out of like the central space into the wide areas and causing causing issues that way. Whereas Tony is a centre forward. He's played in a pair, but he, he's much more of a sort of box centre forward. He, He's just much more of a traditional centre forward, so he doesn't have the ball carrying ability. He's not going to come deep and spin you and then drive um, thirty yards towards goal. He's he's much tighter, um, just wants to get stuck in a little bit more. But last night was probably his most well, I guess it's his most mobile game in terms of being physical, um, sort of running the channels and coming short to pick the ball up. He was just unstoppable, and even when we were down to ten men, I, I don't th- I don't think it felt like we were down to ten men. There was obviously you, your possession grew, but Tony's was still occupying both centre-backs and it was, yeah, from our perspective, it's really pleasing because he, he kind of has everything. He could do everything that Watkins can do, but it's it's his mobility and the way he moves and his touch that's a lot weaker because he isn't a dribbler and he isn't a ball carrier. So the sooner, well, he is rapidly developing that kind of, that side of the game. And if, if he does, I, I don't see many, he's basically like a young version of Deeney. But also with the um, with the sort of with a better well the touch as well in the movement and um, yeah it was I, was I was just quite glad he was on our side.
4: <laughs> yeah, no, I was going to say upgrades probably the wrong word. I thought, I mean, Watkins, someone I, one of my first reports ever did was only Watkins. I think is a great player, um, mm-hmm. but I think there's something just about about Tony that's just that kind of he he suits the way Brentford play extremely well. Obviously Watkins did too. He was extremely productive and he obviously got the big move off the back of it. But the thing just about watching Tony and that team that he just he just suits everything you're about as as a side and I think he just offers you he offers you really good balance in that position um Watkins is extremely competent carrying the ball and Mm. and obviously I think last season you from from the bits I saw, you looked you looked like a team that was able to focus and lean on that individual carrying of the ball a little bit more, but now it seems that you have kind of shifted a little bit but a little bit more towards that build up from from your front three and your midfielders as a whole and, and become a little bit more of a intricate side in, in at times, even though of course you were able to uh, last year it just looks like you've got a little bit more balance up front now.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the the problem last year and why we came up unstuck against a number of teams, very similar sort of deep-lying, stodgy teams, um, was because we, did, we didn't have anyone to pin themselves physically onto back lines like Tony did last night. So Watkins would try hard, but naturally you're playing with three, but really you're playing a forward line with three wide forwards who just roam around and sort of rotate. And there was never really a fixed point to pivot from in that forward line. And Watkins tried, but he just isn't the same kind of player as Tony. So now you're seeing um we could have done with Tony last year but this is if we had tony last year i think this team would have probably gone up and it would have gone up in the automatic positions it just missed the center forward who with the with his physicality and then the other qualities we're talking about as well
4: but well, that's definitely something we've been facing too is, is facing teams that are able to sit back and soak up pressure you've got to look for new ways to break them down mm. and if you don't have someone i mean I feel like, I mean, this is a, this is a long time ago. The first report I did on to, on, uh, on Watkins, but something I noticed, I noticed even then, was his back to goal play was definitely a weaker part of his game. Uh, and when you do have that lack of space in behind, he he didn't quite feel comfortable and I think that's something that Tony's good at he's, he's good at being patient and and making runs that are awkward for the defender rather than having to rely so much on on what he can do when he has the ball at his feet I think he opens up a lot of space for the opposition and uh, for, for, for his teammates sorry and that's something that we've not really had a uh, figure in Dean he's very as he's aged he's become very stagnant in, in the central areas and he doesn't really make things too difficult for for his opponent so we, we rely on a lot from the uh, the movement from our wing and it wasn't quite there again last night but I think in terms of a, a blueprint of how to attack teams um, that are going to sit back off you, yeah, I think last night and, and just Brentford in general were pretty good, a pretty good blueprint for us to look at as a team too and how we can maybe adapt to playing that sort of opposition.
2: Following on from the penalty that was uh, again very well dispatched this time from Tony, there was a, a whole heap of the second half still to play and you felt at that time as though Watford might be able to take advantage of the fact that they were playing against 10 men it didn't really seem to pan out that way though um david did, did the shape change from a brentford perspective to try and be more defensive or, or did did they carry on playing the same way
3: yeah this is this is brentford all over so the mindset when you're sort of yeah most teams fall into this you've you're you've got your goal you're you're drawing let's just sit back and defend this but It's not really how um, sort of modern, like the the numbers don't tell you to do that. It's it's not beneficial. So you should really attack and you should should try and spend as much time attacking as you can to run the clock down and actually also sneak opportunities yourself. So Frank was really clever and he brought uh, Marcus Force on. Um, uh, Marcus Force got really close to Tony and it was a front two. So he said it was a, um, uh, yeah, like a 4-3-2 we were playing. Tried to keep some of the integrity in midfield and keep the four at the back. And uh, try and get them quite narrow and compete in the wings when it did go out there, but the two up front, and to, as I said, Tony made even even when we were down to ten, he made it seem like he was putting enough pressure basically on a Kong and um, Caballelli that they they weren 't going to have an easy game, even though we were a man down, and he was just working the pair of them really really hard. Um, so some of the goal kicks coming short and um, sort of spinning in behind, letting it drop over or just bringing it down. And he nearly got forced in a couple of times as well, actually from just really good touches and then turning and spinning him in. So yeah, the the, the to keep the attacking principles to have two players central occupying your two, uh, your two centre backs. And then, yeah, it, it was just, it was really pleasing from our perspective because we felt, I, I, I definitely felt there was serious goal threat and um, uh, I, I if I'm honest with you, I didn't think you were going to score the winner, but I actually thought there was more chance of us uh, nicking the points and um getting the second, which is quite interesting if you we'll probably come onto it, but if you look at the timeline of sort of shots and um the xG going towards the latter parts of the game, uh, Brentford probably did i I think you you didn't really have many shots basically after red card obviously you had the penalty but nothing else really of of note um there was the disallowed goal which is another sort of poor officiating where i I forget your substitute's name the one that comes in yeah so that that was um that was really unfortunate i mean that would have changed the entire evening but other than that chance there wasn't really anything major in the box it was cleverly had a couple of moments that scuffed wide uh which is really interesting because the commentators sort of described Cleverly as one of the most naturally gifted players that he'd ever seen, and I just thought was he talking about someone else? I wasn't <laughs> sure if he, if he meant Cleverly, but I, I, I just saw we we just we we attacked enough just to keep you sort of occupied and um, and sort of won fouls when the ball did go up to the other end and and uh, just to keep just to keep the clock running down just enough, and then uh, I think we came close to close to nicking it ourselves.
2: Yeah, Jordan, what do you think it was about what for the didn't allow them to take advantage of the fact that they had a, you know, a spare man on the field for, for a good portion of the game.
4: I mean, getting a man sent off is actually kind of a, a bit of a debatable topic. I've spoke I've spoken to lots of lots of coaches and stuff that have said that they actually don't really feel like it changes mentality. It doesn't have to change mentality too much. And you go down to ten, um, it's all about how you approach it. And if you if you're in a position as Brentford were last night, sorry, where they felt comfortable in possession, they felt like they've had the advantage in those situations. They don't have to change too much if they can still get players into them areas. They might have to take a few risks if they want to be aggressive still, but they can they can still dominate parts of the pitch. So they were doing so beforehand so it doesn't have to be a massive momentum change I think it gives the the team who who have a player sent off it gives you that kind of psychological impact where you feel like you've got a little be a little bit more defensive but if you are coached well you don't have to be necessarily and I thought I thought Brentford did a good job of not not becoming uh too passive once once they once they lost the once they lost the man so yeah, I think we just didn't really get in a position where we could control the game. And I don't think having 10 players made enough of a difference for us to do so because ultimately, I don't think the midfield that we had on the pitch was anywhere near the best we have available to us or, or hopefully soon have available to us. and I just don't really think they have the ability to, to pull teams around like that, especially if Brentford had decided to become a little bit more compact and tight. I think we really would have struggled. So I think Brentford were pretty confident in the fact that even with the 10, that we weren't quite able to just to pull them out of position. And as, as it happened, we didn't really change our plan much at all. Had a little bit more of a uh, impetus in, in the way we moved the ball, but it was still very similar patterns and, and pretty direct and just not enough to cause trouble.
2: Yeah, it certainly was better than the first half, though, where um, Watford you know, failed to really get anything on target. Uh, in the second half, they, they did challenge a bit more. And, and obviously, we've mentioned they had the disallowed goal that would have changed everything. But um, ultimately, it felt like the draw was the right result for, for both teams, really. But what did you think about uh, the way that Brentford didn't really s- look to settle for the point like, um, like many teams perhaps would if they were the away side?
3: Well, yeah, I think we probably just have to recognise that Watford are a team of sort of quite expensive players. And I don't think your midfield is good. I said that in the prime. I don't think the players we saw on the pitch, Chalibur, Cleverley, Organa, are really um, sort of top-end championship midfielders. I think they're probably mid-tier, which is probably going to be weird to hear from maybe some of your listeners. But... There is always going to be moments that they they sort of dominate, and I think when a team that powerful does actually attack, it's actually quite it's it's hard it's hard to stop for for any team. It is going to be it's more it's more does Ivic take the handbrake off and does he does he does he sort of um, push players like sort of ten yards forward? And there were a couple of moments I think Brentford struggled because we still have quite a young midfield. De Silva's played a lot of games um, at this level now. Jensen is in his second season; uh, was third, but. My my point is they're still developing players. Like we're nowhere near the finished article. And Janels in his first season in the in the division, holding, and he probably looked like he'd been there for a really long time. But it's not perfect. And I think there just was moments where, in the second half, just before the red, and then definitely after the red card, where you you have to just dig in, and you're going to the ball isn't going to settle for you, or you're going to take a heavy touch, and and and, the, and an opponent's midfielder is going to pick up on it because. You are, yeah, you're you're still carrying some players who have played at a really high level. I just don't think the on the ball quality is there to to maximize some of these situations. But you, you definitely got livelier uh, uh, after the red card. It it, it was um, harder to keep in. But really, I, I think we're just slightly more athletic. I think I, I think our midfielders are a bit better at carrying the ball, and that probably showed. And, and yeah, as Jordan was saying, even with ten men, I, I think you'd. Kapu'e came on and did change some things. I think he got a little bit more expansive when he was on the pitch, which um, he sort of spread the ball wide a bit. Um, but other than, yeah, other than Saar sort of doing something magical, I I didn't really feel like there was sort of a systematic route to goal, basically. It needed, Deeney needed to sort of pick up the ball and just turn and hit one. Other than that, it was, it, it, you didn't look too threatening if you get my drift.
2: What was your Watford friend's uh, opinion of the game at the end?
3: Uh, at the end, he was so happy with the draw. He, he was, yeah, he's pretty honest. Um, I, I think he got a bit. It's, it's weird because t- people just sort of hear about Brentford and they think of them as just this small club. And But when they actually see them play, they get a real wake up call and they shock about sort of what modern football is and, and some of the principles and, and how how you can get sort of unknown players to some people to play like that. And then it makes them sort of self-reflect and look at their own team and think, gosh, if they're doing that with that, what what have we been doing for all these years? So he, he's quite frank. and um, But yeah, he was sending me through sort of stuff from Watford forums about players sort of saying, Ivic, get out of our club, I've had enough of this and stuff like that. It was pretty brutal. Um, but at the end, I, I think he kind of accepted that there wasn't enough in attack from you to really punish us and probably get the second and yeah he he was quite honest and I think he accepted that 1-1 one, one probably suited.
2: Jordan, do you think Ivich would would take the 1-1? One, one?
4: Um, I mean, I think in on the of things he had to in the end, but I just want to touch on the mid, oh, midfield really quick because that's something we've discussed a lot on Twitter and lots of us Watford fans have talked about. And I will say, David, it, it won't come as a surprise to hear you say that about a midfield because that mid, midfield three was <laughs> no one was happy when they saw that lineup. That um, we we had that in the previous game, and it's it's unfortunate that the, that the three had to start again. There was there been some injuries, and Will Hughes unfortunately contracted COVID, and there was there was some unavailability issues. And I'd say out of the Options we have available in midfield, I'd say the three that started are probably at the bottom. The, they would be the three bottom in terms of starters that we'd, we'd choose between. Um, I think missing missing Hughes and obviously Capu being on the bench, they were they are definitely our two best midfielders. And we also have the option of Domingos Quina, who's who's showing a lot of uh, some glimpses of real quality, especially yeah, in that I attacking really like area. Him, actually. Yeah. He's 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 a really good player and he's he's been perhaps underused at times and he's he's being eased into it and he's he's been used in a few different positions but we also were unfortunate to lose um, Tom Delhi Bashiru to to an ACL injury and he was he was looking very promising so we've been unfortunate there and the midfield is actually going into the season you'd say that's probably our strong point um, especially because we're so confident with what we've seen from Kapu and Hughes over the last few years they've definitely been. By far, two of the two of the strongest players in our in our Premier League campaign as well. So, missing them has been a big impact to us. Um, I think that has kind of lent into us, perhaps looking to be a more wing based team and trying to try to play from there. The majority of our play comes from those areas. So our I midfield mean, really does feel like a literal engine room. Like there's not much <laughs> in terms of uh in terms of trying to progress the ball through the center. And we we literally have three bodies in there that go try and hassle and harry and, and and win the ball back and and possibly um look to play forward from the wing. So yeah, it, it was always going to be very disrupted in there and we were not feeling confident about that so I think that was definitely a a position that you guys had to exploit and I think you did a good job of that so um, yeah yeah, it comes as no shock to us that we're not viewed as uh, strong in that position when those three start (laughs) I mean the thing with those as well is they're not individually they're not terrible players I'm not trying to just criticize them massively but as a three um, they don't complement each other well at all Um, they just all they all have that kind of that kind of feeling that they're not bad additions to a midfield if you're looking for that kind of keep possession ticking over and and be you know athletic enough to get around the pitch and and have the opposition. But if you have three of those, it just doesn't really work for you. And and that was definitely a stumbling block for us. And it, it will be as long as it's um as long as it's is a starting three.
2: That game at Vicarage Road was a game that had 2,000 Watford fans. But that's the last time that there'll be Watford fans for a little while because Watford have gone back to Tier Three, which means that no fans are allowed to attend the game throughout this period. There's a stat doing the rounds that uh, this season in the championship has been the lowest for the average number of goals per game. It's fallen to around about 2.25, that kind of number. And it hasn't been that low since 1892, (laughs) which is uh, incredible. I I just wonder, do you think the fact that there aren't fans in the games, more or less predominantly for the majority of this season, is having an impact on, on the fact that we're not seeing as many goals or is it just coincidental?
3: I think there probably is something in that. Um, it's not the sole reason. I don't think. Um, yeah, I, I think there's this this sort of feeling that fans will in goals and that they're behind many goals happening in games. I, I don't think that, that's not really true. It's But the, the, what's happening this season is it's such an intense and sort of really, really busy schedule so recovery is down i think a lot of a lot of teams are suffering with big injuries um I, I don't think there's any teams that are sort of naive enough to just go hell for leather game after game after game i think there's just going to be moments where you need to conserve and and I, I think just underestimating this relentless schedule it's tuesday to saturday sort of every week and uh i think a lot of players are just just being coaxed through that and managed through that and it's having an impact on attacking play and that combined with the championship has slowly so uh, i think with the influx of quality of coaching i I think a lot more teams are finding it like they're sort of defending better you're not seeing the golfing class and sort of attack free defense i think a lot of teams now can establish themselves as good defensive units you're obviously always going to get big outlier wins and stuff and sort of high high margin wins but there's um there's there's definitely an improvement in sort of defensive shape and defensive structure, and and a willingness to defend through games, and just accept that actually we're not we're going to go for a nil-nil here, or we're just going to keep this really tight and try and play for a one-nil from a set piece. So it's a combination of things. I think the fans might have had an impact, um, the fitness of players, and also just a just an improvement in defensive coaching.
2: Have you noticed a difference at Brentford with with the fans being there?
3: uh so the two games that the fans were there um they were two freezing cold well it was a freezing cold tuesday night um i think against blackburn i might have got it the wrong way around and the other one was a saturday and it was i i, I don't think they made any difference at all it was, both games ended up in draws one of them was a nil nil um one of the games brentford were two one up and conceded really late and um against men actually against blackburn we had ten men and Bre- blackburn scored an equalizer in sort of the 85th minute so Really, they had no impact. They're, just, they're kind of—it's just it's, they're just there for the spectacle. There would have been a couple of moments where some players after the match felt they they came out and said that the fans willed them on. And sergey Canos was a highlight for Brentford. He said that playing in front of the fans meant so much for him, and he scored his first goal in over in almost two years. Sort of his first goal involvement in almost two years, which he can say that the fans willed that in, but basically he was due a goal anyway so whatever he says doesn't really it's not really you've got to take it at face value but um his goal could have come at any stage whether fans were there or not um i think it's just convenient that it's a lovely narrative and it melds a lot to him and yeah I'm, I'm not um not quite as uh as romantic as i probably should be
2: that's right that's statistical brain of yours david it won't allow you to
3: <laughs> jordan what do you think
2: yeah, I think
4: it's probably pretty accurate. I mean, I think there's there's something to be said. I guess you could you could argue that players can, that fans can play a part in in certain moments of games. I think it can shift momentum at times. I think we've all been involved in in games at some level where you've you've seen just the reaction of fans kind of bleed into the players. But yeah, for the most part, I think you're, you're pretty spot on. It's not going to have the direct impact. And I think also too, I think a, a large portion of the time, it's actually away fans that that make a difference for the teams. If fans mm. do have an influence anyway. Um, but yeah, I think there's also just a general pragmatism that's going on in football at the moment off the pitch and on the pitch. I think we saw it in the transfer market with a lot of clubs and I think on the pitch too. I think as as David was saying, you're going to be a little bit more conservative and your medical teams are going to have more of a say in what's going on, I think because they ultimately they have to they have to worry about the longevity of the players a little bit more, um, especially with the schedule that's happening. So it's going to result in um it's going to result in a few few cage year games and yeah, if it, if it means that teams are scoring less and that's what's going to happen because also as David was saying the coaching's improved so there are it's a different league than when we were last in it I think um, you're going to have a little bit of a you're going to have a, a, some closer affairs and we had we had some games in our, in our promotion campaign where we won comfortably and we were pretty confident going in um, and we, we scored we conceded quite a few as well but you, you can tell from the way the teams operate that they're, they're more comfortable off the ball and I think just football's evolved a little bit and teams are starting to become more aware of of how they can operate in a, in a way to achieve achieve goals kind of maybe beyond their means at times and, and defending is a big part of that so I think as time's gone on it's just become a, a bigger part of the game and it's something that we've got to get used to again.
2: 19 odd games gone now for, for most sides it's interesting to note that uh in 18 of the last 21 seasons two of the three promotion winning clubs were in the top 6 after this period so do you think that uh, both watford and brentford could could go back to the premier league or or, uh, or even to the premier league for brentford mm. in their, in their in their case
3: yeah that's interesting you know i i, I think yes i think there's a chance this year is it's, it's Really, I think it's going to be survival of the fittest and probably who makes the best moves in January or who's the boldest in January um, and who can get in, enough sort of fit players on the pitch without delving into their academies and sort of reserve players. Um, but Watford are a strong team. I, I can see I can see you being good enough defensively to get you through. I just don't know if you'll have enough in attack. I, I think if you look at a lot of your goals and your games, there's just single goal margins, nil-nils. Uh, there's been a couple of, I think you've got three where you've beaten teams by two goals or there's been more than two goals for you. It's, it's very tight at the moment. And if, if you continue like that, it's, you're probably going to find out that nil-nils do occur or you sort of end up on the, uh, on the wrong side of one nils. You're not quite doing enough to dominate who you're playing. So it, it could be that Ivic doesn't go throughout the entire season and the more attacking coach comes in or um, a couple of additions or as you said, some of your better players come back. But I, I think the cards are with you. If you, I wouldn't have thought if if something doesn't change. I think you might struggle, and you'll probably just make the playoffs. But I, I wouldn't have thought this team in this guy's gets through automatics. No, no. There's there's too many better all-round teams. I think at the moment. So it's Swansea, Brentford, um, Norwich, probably uh, Bournemouth as well. And yeah, you, you've got a little bit to go in that regard. But it's it's such a long season. There's so many more games that um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't um, nail anything in. I wouldn't lay any money on anyone going up just yet.
2: Jordan, do you think the board really care too much about the football that's played as long as it's delivering the results? Do you, I mean, I think if you were to ask the fans, the fans would say we'd rather go up playing the same way that Brentford are playing and, and exciting you know, exciting their fans the majority of the time. At the minute, most of the things I hear from Watford fans is, oh, well, you know, Yeah, we might have got the win there, but it was pretty boring, or, you know. Yeah,
4: Uh, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't underestimate... When you're, at, when you're looking at Brentford and Watford, they're, they're two very different sides, but the, the amount of planning that goes into both of them, they've, they've both had a lot, of, a lot of input over the years, but Brentford have had the advantage of having that cohesive plan um, operating in the same division and, and working out a strategy and how to improve incrementally over the seasons. And they've, they've been able to, to have a consistency in recruitment in terms of looking at how to, how to assess players, how to bring them in and what type of players they want to have in and what type of football they want to produce. Whereas the difficulty we've faced is that we've gone through lots of transitions over the years. You've gone from being promoted, keeping keeping yourself in the league, trying to take the next step didn't go go quite right. So you try to change approach again, try and step forward again, have some success, and then you know you're in a competitive league. So we've been in a constantly evolving cycle of um, of of. Requ- requirements we have to meet when it comes to to players on the pitch and and coaching so Brentford have had a very a very stable base to work off in the sense they're very confident in in their plan they haven't quite got promoted yet they've been very unfortunate not to especially last season um but the they're the kind of ideal you want to be looking at in terms of of how to to become a, a very good footballing team and be pretty stable in, in how you do so. But that takes a lot of time, and we're trying to do it in a in one year, which is obviously very difficult. Um, with Ivić himself, I think this is, I understand um, what the board were thinking in him. Uh, he's he's definitely shown more um, in previous jobs that he 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 is pragmatic, but he has got more to him offensively. I do think that we he's been trying to figure out a little bit how, how he can get that that going in in the right areas with the personnel he has available. I think he's been a little bit unfortunate in, in some of the players he's inherited to haven't quite fit what he wants to do. But there's a there's, as I said earlier, there's a pragmatism going on. So you can't be too expansive in terms of who you're bring in. But he's got he's got some players there that he can be effective with, but it might just need um a little tweak and approach. And I think we had seen that at times he changed to that four four two and we got a little bit more success. Um, but ultimately, he is confident in his team's defending, and I think, I think maybe, maybe he can be at times. I think we we have shown that we are able to do so, but we just need to see a little bit of uh, a little bit more freedom for some of our attacking players and just working out that structure because there is enough there to do so. Um, but I think going forward, it, it's going to be a case of if he's not giving results, he's gonna be under pressure and that's always gonna be the way things are. If he had time, then you know, things might improve and he might be able to implement that plan a little more. But ultimately, I think if you try to get out of this league by sitting on your on your narrow margins of a lead, you are gonna struggle and I think it's gonna be it's gonna be very difficult to make sure you're on the right side of them one nils often enough and, and you're gonna have a lot of draws and ultimately that is going to be a playoff spot in, in the best case scenario. So yeah, I think things have to change or we probably are looking at that for now.
2: That's Jordan Weimer, football analyst and Watford fan. And you can follow him on Twitter for, as always, quality content at Jordan Weimer. And also David Anderson featuring today as well at David Anderson underscore one, and he's putting out loads of interesting stuff too, as is Brentford FC Tactical at Bees Tactical, so I suggest you follow both of them too. Right, well, that's it from this part of the show for the analysis of the Hornets versus the Bees. I think the only thing we can really be sure of is that they are, well, they're both pretty annoying around a picnic, aren't they? Next up, then, we'll be chatting to Brady Fost, fan and podcaster from the Annie Takes That Chance Huddersfield FC-based podcast. Oh, no... Oh, mate, you've sliced that one. Oh, Oh, man, that's just getting embarrassing now. Right, that's it. I'm sorting this out. Hello, is that Nick Pinnock's Golf Academy? Can you fit me in for a few lessons, please? Oh, terrific. Yes. Blimey, what a shot. What in the world has happened to your game? If your game could do with some improving, get in touch with Nick Pinnock's Golf Academy, based in Panshanger. Nick is a PGA qualified coach who can analyse your game with the latest technology and coach you to beating your mates in no time. For more details, Google Nick Pinnock's Golf Academy. Okay, now let's turn our attentions to the visitors. This Saturday, Watford are playing against Huddersfield, and to chat about the terriers, it's Brady Frost, fan and podcaster from the Annie Takes His Chance Huddersfield FC based podcast. Now, first question, Brady, what an amazing name that is! I love, I love it when podcast names are something a bit more than just like a Huddersfield FC podcast.
0: Yeah, so it's actually from the commentary. So it was the twenty sixteen. 17 uh, playoff final, um, and it's Christopher Schindler who uh, I'm sure we might discuss later. Um, he's lining up to take the penalty, and the commentator says he has his he has uh, Christopher Schindler has his chance to write his name in Huddersfield Town legend. Scores a penalty, and he takes that chance. So uh, there you go. It's a bit wordy, um, but it has got meaning.
2: <laughs> nice, probably only to Huddersfield fans because I had no idea what he was relation to. So I'm pleased you cleared that up for us. Um, well, welcome to the show, and. Uh, I suppose the first things to say is that um, Huddersfield have experienced a real high to low in in only you know a couple of seasons, and I mean, w- w- albeit they're trying to rebuild, it's uh it's probably been a bit of a rollercoaster ride for you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it's kind of <laughs> it's been the most. I'd argue probably one of the most interesting five years of any football team. You know, David Wagner came in. Um, it's well documented about him, but you know, Brucey Dortmund second team coach. Uh, we were tipped for relegation. We ended up winning. You know, going into the playoffs and winning it. And it was completely unexpected. And then, um, which it, 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 uh, this word gets thrown uh, thrown around a lot in line, football, but it was it was a miracle. Uh, it was an absolute miracle. And then. To not only go to the Premier League, but to stay up the first season um, was even more of a miracle. And um, unfortunately, all all good things have to come to an end. And the second season in the Premier League, where we finished with a, a terrible points tally and got thrashed on a regular occasion, it, it, these players we had were you know, overachieving for those two seasons. And unfortunately, all crashed and burned, really. Um, and as as we saw with last season, um, you know, we nearly did a Sunderland and got relegated back to back. But um, luckily, the Cowleys came in at just about the right time and just managed to stay up. So, um, yeah, it's a bit more positive than uh, uh, last season so far. But yeah, last two seasons have been a bit, a bit dismal, to be
2: honest. Was you a bit surprised that given that they kind of did the job that they were asked to do that um, they, they were replaced by Carlos Corberan.
0: I was yeah um, I think it's it's very difficult because among the Huddersfield Town fan base um, kind of split on the Cowley sacking so I was a big fan of Danny Cowley uh, and Nicky I, I think I do believe they'll go on to be Premier League managers um, the criticisms they got were we didn't really play a great style of football um, so that's one of the reasons the chairman has made the decision to bring in Carlos Corbaran the only thing I'd caveat with that though is, it, it's circumstantial. So the Cardiff came in, we'd played seven games, we'd only had one point, um, and no team in that in the history of the championship, I believe, had stayed up after that. So it was like, oh, it's all well and good to uh, play nice attacking football, but we need points because we need to stay in this division. And they did that. Um, and I, f- I thought, given how much of a car crash it was when they came in, and they did a relatively good job and just got us over the line, um, it was it was a bit of a shock. Um, so it's kind of hard I I would have liked to see what the Cowleys would have done this season but um, I will admit if you compare as I kind of touched on the circumstances but I think we are seeing a a lot nicer style of football under Carlos Corbran
2: Corbran is obviously noted for having worked under Bielsa who were very successful obviously last season and and, and looked like they're doing pretty well in the Premier League as well what do we know about Corbran? Uh, How does he... Play tactically, what's his what's his sort of like philosophy? Is it very similar to how Bielsa uh, managed the game and, and is he bringing that to Huddersfield?
0: Yeah, he is. So um, it's his first uh, managerial role in England, but he's actually been a manager before in uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, he got a job, I think it was for Al Ittihad and he was recommended by Pep Guardiola uh, for the position. So he's kind of got a lot of kudos in the game and obviously he was originally at Leeds, um, before Bielsa came in Bielsa welcomed into his him into his circle which he's he's not really done at any other club so it kind of you know it all sounds good um Korberan, he, he kind of alters formation based on who we're playing um which is interesting to see but I think uh it's, it tends to be kind of the 4-3-3 formation um at the moment and we do we do see you know obviously we play out from the back um if you've uh, not I'm not sure many Watford fans will be watching Huddersfield Town Highlights but um we we do kind of have a customary goal at the moment where play starts with the keeper pass it to the centre back and then before you know it you know five six seven passes we're, we've scored a goal we've already done that a couple of times and you can kind of see the style of play taking effect it's positive it's attacking um and it's a bit frustrating as a fan because you can see obviously we have a team that just avoided relegation last season um playing this new way uh way of football and um it's, it's frustrating because you get def- defensive mistakes. Um, we're great. One one match, we can win 3-0, then we can lose 3-0, we can win 3-2 and then lose 4-3. So I'd definitely say we're one of the more entertaining sides um, if you're a neutral to the uh, to our games. But uh, as a fan, it, it, you can tear your hair out a little bit watching it.
2: Yeah, you, you uh, played 18 so far. You won seven, lost eight. It feels pretty balanced, but obviously I suppose... You know, you're hoping for 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 something more towards the playoffs. Do you think that's something that's achievable this season?
0: I think that's a bit of a stretch. Um, just just given with our our squad currently, I I, I was quite um, pessimistic at the start of the season. I'd, I'd initially predicted us for 21st just because um, we actually, had, in my opinion, a weaker squad than we did under the counties. Um, brought in a couple of better players, but overall, the squad depth is really lacking. We're having to fill a lot of youngsters, so. I, if if we did um, manage to get a playoff push and be close, I would be absolutely amazed. I think it would be a huge overachievement. But I think we're, we're mid table now. Uh, I think that's going to be more likely because again, it's that inconsistency that I think is really going to hold us back. But I, I, I take it we, we've we've had some good wins so far. Beat Swansea away from home, um, which yeah. was a complete shock. Uh, beat Middlesbrough, scored three goals past them. Who um, who were its best defence in the league before we played them. So um, we've certainly played a lot better. And I, I think, like with anything, it's a project. It's it's been classed as, and it takes time. And I think Corbran needs to get more of the players he wants in before before we can do that. And so I think I would take comfortably mid table. And given how chaotic uh, the last couple of seasons have been, I, I think a bit of stability would be uh, would be good. <laughs>
2: Did Corberan have the chance to to get any players in at all uh, in the transfer market, or, or was it kind of too late for him?
0: No, so he brought in a, a couple of people. So we got um, Nabisar, uh, who was a defender from Charlton on a free. Um, and to be honest, Nabisar kind of embodies this team at the moment. He, he can be. Um, Bobby Moore one game and then Bobby Ball the next he's completely <laughs> um, yeah just like all over the shop he can have a good game and a bad game um, but he has helped with the playing out of the back style um, but has made quite a few mistakes this season sometimes uh, brought in Danny Ward as well who was on a free from Cardiff um, he oh, yeah, was originally yeah. at Huddersfield uh, so it's his second time back but uh he's just been injured really. He played against Bournemouth and then um I think that was his first start and then he got injured and it looks like he's gonna be out for two weeks. Um brought in Carol Eiting um, from Ajax On Loan, who for me, um, there is a rumour that there's a, a kind of an option to buy him. I don't know how legit that is, but if that's the case, um sign him up because he has been he's been quality, he's been chipping in with goals and you know it was a bit of a coup really for a team like Huddersfield to get a player from from Ajax and the the lad the lad had injuries, but um, you know he was being compared to uh, you know Donny Van der Beek, Frankie De Jong. He was in that and, and Matthias delict He was in that group of players, and you know he he just brought a class to our midfield. And yeah. um, I think he's definitely helped Coburn play his way. And um, I don't really want to go on about him too much because I don't want other teams to know about. Him.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you say that he uh, he sort of sets up his team a bit differently for for every. Side, how do you think he'll set up for, for Watford?
0: I think it'll depend really because at the moment we're kind of um we've got quite a few injuries. So, um, in terms of centre backs, Christopher Schindler uh, and Richard Stearman are injured. So, I think it kind of depends on what Watford are like away. I've not really had a chance to look into you guys yet, um, but we normally do for our previous show. But sometimes if it if it's a stronger opposition, he'll play free at the back. Um, I think because of injuries. Uh, he probably won't do that because we don't have the centre-backs to be able to do that so I imagine it'll be four three three. 3 3 our wing-backs who have contributed to a lot um, a lot of our goals this season in, in Pippa and Harry's off I think that'll be key and then it'll probably be Nabi and and um, Romani Edmonds-Green who's, who's a youngster um, who was on loan at Swindon uh, last season and, and really kind of made a name for himself and yeah, it, again we're kind of we're kind of short. We lost Josh Caroma, um, who's our top scorer this season. And again, that was kind of out of the blue. Um he's out for three months. So it's kind of a, an injury hit squad, really. So I, I imagine it'd be 4 3 3. Obviously, because we're playing at home. Um Corbran does like to attack uh, at home and he, you know, he likes to attack in every game really. So we will come and have a go. Um I think it's just <laughs> we will concede. Um I'd be amazed if we don't concede. I suppose it's just as we kind of touched on before we record um, you're a lot more defensively sound as well so I think the key for Huddersfield will be obviously the quality of Watford um, is kind of keeping it shut for you but also being able to break you down and I think it'll be a difficult
2: game Yeah, I was going to say it's disappointing for you that you've lost Karoma but I guess that just sort of gives the opportunity for other players to step up and uh, Fraser Campbell could be that man
0: Yeah um, Fraser Campbell's a bit of a weird one. He gets it gets quite a lot of um stick from town fans, but I don't he's difficult because I don't he is a striker and he can score the occasional good goal. Um I think it helps that he scored that volley against Nottingham Forest this season and that happened to be on Sky and everyone saw that, but he's not really he's not been a prolific goal scorer in our time. Um last season he only got three goals. This season I think he's on a similar similar Um, kind of level but what he brings He scored scored
2: three already though I mean that's uh, that's better than uh, going three all season
0: No very true very true look I like the guy I was just coming on to uh, to defend him Uh, I think he for me um, the front three we seem to be playing that works well is Isaac and Benzer Campbell and Coroma when Karoma was fit and I think what Campbell's really good good at is bringing the best out of our two kind of uh, wide wing wingers and um, yeah he's great you know he He's he he can have great games. He can have not so great games. I think what you'll get from Campbell is he'll run his, you know, run his socks off, and that's kind of what we want as as Huddersfield fans. But he can kind of you know that can work really well, and he can contribute and hassle and create space for other people to you know get their quality out. But he can also hassle and Harry, and he tends to pick up a yellow card and he'll do a couple of reckless fouls. But it's just because he's committed. Um, I think I think our fans kind of look at him. In the wrong way really he's not a prolific goal scorer but for me he, he's a bit like Bamford last season before he's kind of got going in the prem it's it's bringing out the best of other players and being that focal point of the attack for the other players in the team to contribute
2: I always like to to note sort of uh notable players that that used to play for Watford and one of the the big ones of course is Jonathan Hogg who who you'll know very well he uh he he Ended up setting up that uh, amazing Deeney finish in that uh, Watford versus Leicester playoff game. What do you, uh, what do you make of him?
0: The, look, for me, Jonathan Hogg is a fantastic um, stalwart for the club. You know, like I say, it's it's funny when you always watch that um, Watford Leicester game. I suppose when you're looking at it with a kind of a town fan uh, way of viewing it. it's like how, how is Jonathan Hogg so um, so far forward? He doesn't do that for us, um, which always kind of amuses me. But he's a, he's been a fantastic servant for the club. Um, last season, he didn't have his best season, but let's be honest, half the most of the team didn't. But I think what I've been really impressed with is his ability to adapt. Um, you know, when Cor- we heard about Corberan's style of play, you know, we saw some stuff in the in the preseason, the short preseason, and I was I was kind of thinking. Is Hogg going to be one of those players that it doesn't quite work for him? But he—he's a you know he's a true true professional and he he's been one of our best players um, hands down this season. And he kind of showed. I mean, we were obviously always going to lose at Bournemouth, but he couldn't play that game because of injury, and it really showed. You know, he he is so pivotal to uh, us performing well. You know, playing those balls. You know being that Terrier, um, obviously we're called the Terrier, but he is someone who who embodies that Terrier spirit. You know, he never gives up. He's always up for a tackle. He always likes to leave something on someone uh if they've uh, you know done a flashy trick past them or, you know, given him something he'll give something back. And, you know, he, he is a fantastic player. Um I'm amazed how well he's adapted this season and, you know, it's just I can't speak highly enough of him. He's he for me is an Huddersfield Town legend, and he's done so much for this club and been such a key part in um, the recent successes that we've had with the, with the promotion and the Premier League.
2: Is there anyone that uh, we should be keeping our eyes on from a, an attacking point of view? Then, if it, if it's not going to be Hog, who does the job in midfield? Who else uh, could could uh, could do that that role?
0: I think what um, the kind of player I I would suggest is is Isaac and Benza. Um again. This is where you have to credit Corbaran, really. So Isaac and Benzo was one of our um, terrible signings in the, in the second season of the Premier League, which is what a lot of fans credit the poor recruitment to being the reason we got relegated. He was under Danny Cowley. He was kind of bombed out of the club. He went on loan to uh, Amiens in uh, in France last season um, and it absolutely considered one of the worst signings we've ever had in recent memory. Uh, Corbran's brought him back into the system. And he's been he's been fantastic, absolutely fantastic. I mean, we played ten million for him, which is not a you know not a small fee for a club like Huddersfield, and he's just really he's shown he's committed. He's shown he wants to play for the club, um, which we haven't seen before. He's scored um, two free kicks this season. Again, trying to think of the last time a Huddersfield Town player could whip a free kick in well, uh, and he just looks up for it, you know, and. I think what's great is he was lumped with Adama Diyakarby, who was another um signing from France who's unfortunately not really kicked on, but in has completely kind of um shed that, you know, negative reputation of him and he he's angry when he gets subbed off because he's committed and it's just fantastic. And his his ability to drive forward, you know, he is a tricky player, he's quick as well. Um he can play striker, but he tends to be best in this 4 3 three on the right side um he'll cause you problems and it's been it's been a kind of a great success story this season so I would definitely watch out for him
2: and then of course your captain in Christopher Schindler who's a a real quality talent who's is still playing in the championship he probably could still be playing in the Premier League to be honest he he was he was that good for you when he was in the Premier League and a word on him
0: yeah so he he's out injured um at the moment so he he's been ruled out for three three months so um, so he won't be playing so it'll be as I kind of mentioned Romani Edmunds Green who will take his place but again Christopher Schindler um, he's out of contract at the end of the season um, the the good news is by the sound of this injury we'll be able to see him play um, but again I think he's he's one of those players who, who took the relegation hard and t- took the took the fall really personally um, you know he's still one player of the season in the two seasons uh, we were in the Premier League absolutely amazing player Best signing, as I mentioned, the reason we've called our podcast and he takes that chance is because he scored the penalty. Um, absolute hero for me. Just just a, again, just a fantastic signing. 1.8 million. And you think of all the good things he's done for this club. He's incredible. Um he's been a he's been a bit um I think he struggled, I would argue, out of our defenders most this season to adapt to the new system. But you know. He's out, he was playing a bit better before his injury so we'll kind of see what happens when he comes back but um, I, I think it'll be a sad day when Christopher Schindler leaves Huddersfield Town I think every fan is in agreement with that but you know he's earned the right to do what he wants to do I would love him to stay on um, uh, when his contract expires at the end of this season but I think he's earned the right to decide what he wants to do
2: Huddersfield strikes me as one of those really family clubs you know what I mean where that sort of really builds around the, the community how Difficult has it been for, for, for the community itself with COVID not being able to go along and, and watch games and then obviously remaining in a tier that uh, didn't allow them to, to go when in this brief period where some clubs have been able to have home fans? Have you struggled to, to be able to witness that? And, and and also, do you think that it's affecting the, the football on the on the pitch?
0: yeah it's it's a bit of a tricky one this because I, I think there's been some positives um but obviously quite a lot of negatives I think from a fan perspective um you just don't feel the same connection as, as I'm sure y- your listeners and yourself will know watching it on iFollow uh which isn't the best service anyway but you know a lot of it for me is it's just that it was the routine it was going to the game it was uh catching up with your friends you know having a drink chatting about the game whether it's gone good or bad and um it does feel miss. I think the club has recognised um, that the connection is not quite there. Uh, obviously, because people can't be in the stadium and engage with it. It's been a bit tricky though. We've had a kind of a new a, a new chairman come in uh, who's who's been a bit marmite with some of the fans, and I, I think that's kind of fed into uh, some of the negative thing around the club. What I would say, um, you know, it's Huddersfield fans. It's a cliche, and it sounds like something that. Uh, um, you know like a player would say but the, fan, the fans do give us an advantage you know when we played in the Premier League even when I remember when we got absolutely battered by Tottenham 4-0 I remember a lot of Tottenham fans saying you know we kept cheering at 4-0 um, we kept going and a lot of people did credit our support and I do think the support is 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 key to Huddersfield um, what I would say though is I think the opportunity for some players again I talk about imbenza uh, ben Hamer who was on loan at, at Derby he's come back into the team and again I don't think any town fan would have thought he'd be our starting goalkeeper this season and I actually think there's there's some instances where those players to rebuild their confidence it's actually been better with without fans in the stadium it gives them a bit more time to regain their confidence and get into the team and get to a new way of playing so I think there has been advantages with that but you know for me it's going to the game, you know, and it's supporting and cheering on my team, good or bad. And I think, I think we do miss it, and it, you know, it's gutting. You know, I, I can't wait. I can't wait to uh, get back in the stadium and cheer them on, or you know, boo them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Hopefully, that'll be sooner rather than later. Although we are heading back into uh, tier three in Watford, so we're not going to be able to see some of the games that were planned to be, to be uh, with fans. But um, hopefully, things will change and get better in the new year um a few last questions then brady Watford's coming up is there anyone that you uh, are worried about that you think could that could damage you in any way
0: yeah so um again i i think it's no surprise that you guys are fed on the table i think particularly this season um with kind of the restrictions with covid and that affecting match day revenue and obviously the parachute payment. I do think this is a weird year where we see teams get relegated and struggle to adapt to the championship and go straight back up. But I actually think because of the circumstances around this year, I would be really surprised if um, the three relegated sides, yourself as Bournemouth and Norwich, aren't up there or thereabouts. Um, I, I'm, I, I, so I think you'll be up there at the end of the season for sure. I, I think in terms of the game on Saturday, you know, you, you guys have a huge squad. Um I would argue it's the best squad on paper in the championship. You know, you still got players like Dini, but I think Ishmael Assar, You know, again, multi. You know, what was he linked with Man United, Liverpool for forty odd million? You know, he, he's one to watch out for sure. Um, I've been really impressed with Jal Pedro from what I've seen as well. Um, I know he wasn't really in the seat uh, at the club last season. He seems to be impressive, but you know, look, I think um, Watford have a lot of quality. I think that quality is going to. Make a big difference, and there's there's quite a few players we can pick out. Really, I mean, like we mentioned, Deeney's been a bit in and out of the side due to injury. And, you know, for me, Deeney's still a Premier League player. Ishmael Stars still a Premier League player. So, I, <laughs> I think uh, there's a lot of people to watch out for.
2: Absolutely, I mean that memory just comes back to me again. It, the commentary was, uh, "It's Hog, Deeney." That Hog was a, a massive part of that, and uh, I I I hope that uh, he'll be featuring. Uh, on Saturday so that I can I can see him play again because obviously you don't tend to see your old players uh too much when you you're focusing on your team but um it'll be a nice one for me to see that. Uh final one then Brady what what's your uh score prediction for the game?
0: Um well I'll try I'll try and be a bit more positive. Um, I think it depends on you guys really because as we were kind of discussing You've been a little bit more defensive,ly minded than I I expected. Really, um, I imagine we can't seem to buy a clean sheet really at the moment, unless you're Sheffield Wednesday or QPR, who didn't really offer anything attacking wise. But you have the players to hurt us really, so I think both teams will score. Um, I I think just given how many games is played at the moment with COVID, I I do feel we tend to to go for it, and it it kind of depends whether you guys can handle it look you you know if you have the quality to win nine times out of ten but i'm going to be positive here i think it'll be a two two all uh two all i think we'll both score i think it'll be an entertaining game and like i say if you're neutral probably be uh, an interesting game um to watch but as fans of both teams i bet we'll be tearing our hair out so yeah i'm gonna go two all
2: Two. Oh, interesting well Watford have drawn seven of their games this season and several of those have come away so it's not a bad shout that one not a bad shout at all okay then that's Brady Frost fan and podcaster from the Andy Takes That Chance Huddersfield FC based podcast my thanks to Brady for joining us and of course Jordan earlier on in the show and David too that's it for today's episode but we'll be back again after the Huddersfield one to dissect that and hopefully chat about a third away victory of the season for the Hornets fingers crossed until then keep sharing the pod and I'll see you next time bye for now